I was given the text that was read as the background for the sermon today. And of course, the bigger background is all the things that we've sung in these lovely hymns together. They all are based on that which scripture tells us of our loving Heavenly Father, who in this text reminds us that Israel, the people of God, are to hear that the Lord God is one. And to remember that and to write it on their hearts, not as emotions, but with emotion, but as truth, as insight, as foundation of all of life. Behold, O Israel, the Lord God is one. The text of Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, stands in a historical sequence from creation to the fall to God running after Adam to offer him salvation as one day from Eve from Eve will come uh, through the uh, generations of Israel that Redeemer which is the Lord himself Christ Jesus Son of God who came to redeem us from death and from the tragedy of sin. When I say Deuteronomy stands in that stream, it is, in a real sense, and why we call it Deuteronomy, that which Moses gives to the people of Israel just before his death. It's his testament. As the prophet of God, he gives to them once again, a second time, a deuteros, a second time, the law of God by which we are to understand both God's character and kindness as well as our joy of obedience and the foundation of life itself. In Hebrew, it's not called the second law, it's called the divarim, which means the word, the text. It's like a constitution for the people of Israel. It's the foundational document by which all of life is to be organized and to be judged and to be understood and then to be enjoyed and lived. That's the context. Israel had been in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. You read that right at the beginning of Deuteronomy verse, chapter 1, verse 3. And after 40 years of wilderness wandering, they're now ready to go into the promised land and Moses gives them the law as a foundation for the nation of Israel, for their life, for their outlook, for their practice, for their creating something that would be better than what was there before. The history that the Bible talks about is one of a beautiful creation which God decided to put into reality. He created something material and spiritual out of nothing from the desire to have something surrounding him that would praise him, that would reflect his character. And right by the third chapter of Genesis, right at the beginning, we read how that beautiful thing that God had put together in a universe of law, of regulations, of rules, of logic, of refinement into particulars where everything functions according to their kind, where human beings are made in the image of God to love, to create, to speak, to recognize, to build, 
and indeed to be most human, is damaged by the sin of Adam and Eve. But in Genesis 4, as I mentioned, God runs after Adam and says, don't give up hope, you've made a mess, but that's not the end. I will provide a savior. And the rest of the scriptures is a fulfillment, an explanation of God's efforts to bring that about. You have the stories of Cain and Abel to show the tragedy of human interactions when one brother kills another and then pretends he had no duty towards his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, of course you are. He's your brother. And then Noah, who from faithfulness to God builds an ark and saves himself and his family, but there's no indication in scripture that he prayed for the people around him to invite them to repent and to join him in the ark. And then there's the tragedy of the story of the Tower of Babel, when people build a structure into heaven of their own making, hoping that somehow as a society they would be able to hold together. And as everybody went their own way, they couldn't understand each other anymore. The terms they used had different meanings for each, and the language they applied was incomprehensible. And in this kind of a increasing chaos after the fall, God makes a promise with Abraham and says, I'm going to have a people whom I'm going to train that they would indeed be my people. The promise to Abraham was not limited to the Jews, but through Abraham would come the Messiah, the Savior, God's gift to man and the Redeemer from our sin and the Redeemer from death itself. Now, you know the book of Genesis shows us that while God's faithfulness is carried through from generation to generation, their life was far from perfect. There was envy, jealousy, competition, fear. There was uh, worship of other ideas and idols than the true God, and yet God was faithful. That spirit which brooded, who brooded over creation, on the second, in the second chapter of Genesis 1, continued his work and continues his work in the things that the children held up, if indeed the fruit of the Spirit continues to be present from time to time in each of our lives as we struggle to carry through in faithfulness to God what he has started and will continue to accomplish. It's in that history that by the end of 40 years of wilderness wandering, Moses gives the people their constitution, their laws, to remember them, to guide them on their hearts, and to live by them. Now it's very interesting that the word that is used in the fourth verse of that sixth chapter of Deuteronomy is here, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. It's the affirmation, not that God is only one person. We know from scripture that in fact there is a plurality. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. The Jews do not know the plural of majesty. So when it says in Genesis, let us create man in our image, it indicates that there are several who decided to create that. 
and what Christians understand to be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity in our understanding, is indeed revealed here as the plurality in the person of God. One God, but three persons. They loved one another. Love is part of the very essence of God himself. It isn't an afterthought. It's not a particular action. It's in his very being that he is full of love and mercy and compassion. It isn't uh, the oneness that is spoken of here is not in contrast to that view of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all eternity enjoying one another and loving one another. And in that love then expressing the plurality of creation as he made human beings, both male and female, both young and old, of different uh, shapes, of different backgrounds, etc. In Islam, you have the same affirmation of the oneness of God, but without the Trinity, without the plurality in God's eternal being. And so you have total form and no variety. You have total stillness and no action. You have total obedience demanded rather than love. The emphasis in scripture is because God is a person who thinks and feels. He encourages us as persons to love, not just to obey. It says, hear, O Israel. It doesn't say, obey, O Israel. The obedience comes later in the particulars of life itself. But the fundamental relationship to God is one of God's love to us, the enjoyment of his creation, and our love to God because we are people. We don't act by instinct, we act by choice. We choose to love. We don't just feel love. Choice, love is an action. It is not a state of being. When Moses then gives us that constitution, what I call a constitution, the emphasis is indeed on hearing, on listening. Now hearing is one of the senses that we have as human beings and it requires comprehension. We hear all kinds of sounds we pay no attention to. They enter our ears and they register somewhere. But hearing means we get engaged with what is given to us. In the Hebrew understanding of our relationship to the world around us, it is very much based on comprehension. In contrast to the Greek world, where the values of life were deciphered or discovered on the basis of visual experience, the sculptures, the architecture, um, is basically a visual sensation which confirms to you your value, your, uh, proves to you that your significance, etc. In the Hebrew mind, it is understanding. It is something that goes on in the workings of your mind rather than in the impressions you have through sound or sight of the external world. It's very important to understand something of that because the whole emphasis in scripture is that we are treated as people with minds that need to be reoriented, to be truthful, to understand the kind of world we live in 
to reason what is wise and good and helpful and true rather than to live merely by external experiences of sight or sound or noise. Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of the British Empire, he died about three or four years ago, writes about that extensively in the five volumes of the first five books of the scriptures. It's called Covenant and Conversation of each of the five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he describes there how important it is for the Jew to do his thinking, to weigh arguments, to discern wisely, and not to be fooled by sensory perceptions that are merely momentary. Oh, I like that, it's not good enough. Is it true? Is it wise? Is it uh, helpful? Is it objective? Does it have something to do with the nature of reality itself? The emphasis in scripture is of that kind, not of giving pleasure or sensations or temporary satisfactions. All those things we sung about in the hymns and what we read in the text itself relates to our understanding that we live in a universe that is meaningful, purposeful, that is corrupt, but not hopeless. It looks forward to redemption and the restoration of a whole world in which human beings can indeed live uh, in perpetuity continuously and with understanding. That's what's behind that text that we read. Here, O Israel, the Lord God is one. Oneness is not a numerical quantity. It's a statement of God's uniqueness. He alone is God. It has nothing to do with three or one or a thousand other deities. It has something to do with the affirmation that in order to explain our existence as human beings in a scientifically available or knowable universe, the only explanation of that is the proposition that the scriptures make that God is someone, a thinking being, who existed forever. He does not have an origin. He is the one that is eternal. It's not matter that's eternal, but a person is eternal. And he created outside of himself a real world for his enjoyment, for his satisfaction, for his love, for his uh, creativity, uh, as the only possible explanation for the kind of world we live in. For we do not live in a random world. We do not live in an impersonal world. We are not just chemistry and physics. We are also thought and individuality and soul. We have ideas, we matter. We are unique individuals. We may be copied in many ways of appearance of one another, but we stand as individual human beings according to scripture. As I point out from Moses' text, hear, O Israel, rather than obey, O Israel, the emphasis is one of participation, not of submission. It is one of arguing with God, as the Jew does, and as the Christian should do, arguing with every situation in order to understand it deeper, in order to clearly understand what is of God and what's not of God. 
what indeed is normal and what is abnormal, what should be changed and what should be enjoyed. And these distinctions are encouraged precisely because we are to hear and understand what God has said, to know to how to distinguish and to serve one another well. It also ties in with what we've discovered over the last 50 years or 30 years maybe in neuroscience of how the brain works, how the neurons in the brain look for answers, how they'd like to establish patterns in a world of conflicting and confusing impressions. That's what we do as children. Now maybe talking about the brain seems to be so abstract and other. But actually that's what we did as children. When we tried to figure out why parents used the words they used for what they wanted to communicate. And adopted their language, their grammar, their logic in order to be able to communicate with them. That's how we all learned our language. Our mother tongue is what we copied from the tongue our mothers, our fathers used. Because that's what our brain demands, to understand the world around us. We touch, we smell, we, t we feel, we compare. All that is our mental activity which requires satisfaction. The neurons are hungry for more knowledge and insight, for a more complicated structure, a more complex structure of understanding. That's exactly what it means, hear O Israel, the word of God. Bind it on your heart, on your mind. Where remembrances of it that you ought to be thinking about these things in the clothes you wear, in the talar that you carry with you. Bind it on your door. Keep the law in that little uh, mezuzah on the door to remind you every time you walk in and out that you are explained, loved, cared for, and you have your hope in the God who has given you that constitution. Now that's not enough. Because in that book of Deuteronomy, pardon me, in that book of Deuteronomy you find all kinds of uh, prescriptions. You find organizational prescriptions. Who is a priest? How is the service to be organized? You find prescriptions of how to relate with other human beings. How you are to dispel false teaching, etc. How to seek justice, how to give significance to each person. All that you find in Deuteronomy in the specific laws that, are, that you find in the rest of the book. But, those things are given, as it were, in abstractions. To remind you, or to bring back, or back to the Greeks, the Greeks were worried about such things as justice and beauty and love. What on earth is justice? What on earth is love? What on earth is beauty? Are questions that our society today hasn't settled yet because those are abstract concepts. Those are interpretations that we give. And what is needed is precisely not just the universal notion of justice, but rather the particular application of adjusting to the situation at hand, adjusting to the person who is my neighbor, 
adjusting to the reality I've created by loving someone, by having children together, by being a teacher or an engineer or whatever, what does justice mean in the particular situation? And for that to be figured out, we have our minds, the spirit that God gives us. We have the wider perspective that we are have access to in our discussion, in our life, in our experiences of life itself. Justice is not an abstract concept. It has something to do with the rationality of creation itself. With the affirmation that each of us is a human being equal to everybody else in our humanity. And to be just to anyone is to consider what needs to be adjusted in order to honor, to respect, to pay attention, to uh, admonish, to enrich another human being. It cannot be reduced to an individual proclamation or an individual sentence or uh, decision. That's why uh, in scripture, you, Deuteronomy is, while it is the foundation and the constitution of the people, we are admonished precisely to go beyond that. That's what Jesus does in the Sermon of the Mount. When the Ten Commandments given in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy say, you shall not murder, we can all say, I imagine, well, we would never do that. And Jesus says, well, that's just the law. That's just what murder is. But watch out. Are you perhaps on the way to murder? Abstain from that. Are you perhaps angry at somebody? Might you, in fact, have a thought, thought that it would be good to get rid of that person? Well, then you are a murderer. So the abstraction, do not murder, applied to individual situation catches each of us because we've all been angry and wished somebody to not be there. And the same with thou shalt not commit adultery. The commandment in Deuteronomy 5 is in fact in a certain sense an abstraction because I haven't committed adultery. Well, but Jesus says watch out because perhaps you did in your mind lust after somebody who had, you had no right to lust after. So it brings it from the abstraction down into the concrete. And in order to do that reflection, you've got to hear, listen to God's word and let it do its work by the spirit inside of us to reflect on what is involved in murder, not the specifics of a gun, or the specifics of a knife, or the specifics of deliberately driving like a crazy man. It has something to do with attitudes, with an approach to reality that is more subtle, more honest, more, more intimate in my heart and mind, in my fear, in my need to be on top of things, when in fact, in all these areas, I can already be a murderer, guilty of murder. The same with the tithing, you know, so you give a tenth percent, ten percent of your income. Well, perhaps you ought to think a little more about what is involved, not just more than five, but really ten, and about 
all things, and perhaps it ought to be 12, 15. Perhaps it ought to be spontaneous to somebody sitting in the street. Perhaps it ought to be generosity to somebody who is very discouraged. Give them a special day. Let the generosity which is involved in the declaration that you should be tithing, the obedience to the tithing, should waken in us a lively response, a personal response, an intimate, direct, immediate response as the Spirit tells us, man, you've got a good life. Share a bit of it with somebody who is dirty, unwelcome, and alone. That's what I meant. And the heart of the matter is precisely not the keeping of the law. That's what Pharisees did. But it's the application of the law. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not, uh, you shall, uh, whatever. Uh, applying it to the individual situation as I listen to, as we listen to God's word of what his intention is precisely to restore, step by step, something that was so totally damaged at the fall, to which we contribute with the damage of our righteousness, of our thinking that we are righteous, of sticking to the law, of being hard-hearted, of being merely tied to the Constitution. If you allow me an example as a foreigner, I'm actually German, you might know, but all the discussion you have about the Second Amendment must transcend the legal prescription of the right to bear arms. It needs to be reconsidered, not just by the courts, but by each of us in light of the awful damage that's done because people claim to have the legal right to bear arms. Well, yeah, that's a good thing to have in the Constitution. And indeed, life is dangerous, and you should be able to defend yourself. But not without further reflection, not without further consideration, not without seeing the damage that holding on to the law itself is doing to your country. End of my German comment. <laughs> but you see, I use it only as an illustration. We can justify all kinds of things by having regulations. But regulations are only the outline, the principle, the abstraction of what is needed so that with the concept of defend yourself or don't murder or don't commit adultery, we know the framework, but the application in life has to become very much more intimate, personal, immediate, costly. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? You profess to be righteous, but let your righteousness be more than the righteousness of the Pharisees. The word righteous, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount is the same word that's used in Leviticus when it talks about fair wages and correct weights and measures. It's the same rightness, it's the correctness. And what is more correct in human relationships than to love one another and to support one another, to heal one another, to remove someone's fear, to indeed walk the extra stretch of walk with them, 
to share the coat on, that you wear and to show compassion in practice. Look, one more thing. You read or we said together the Lord's Prayer. And when you look at it, the first four things describe the presence of God. Hallowed be thy name, God's kingdom in all its perfection. That's what we long for. Not elsewhere, not in heaven, but here on earth is the promise. When the Messiah comes, he will restore that here on earth. And on the way there, give us this day our daily bread. What do you think that means? Well, Jesus in John 6 says that he is the living bread. The word of God is the bread that we wish to have every day. And with that word of God, we might also be, do a baker's job. But the emphasis and give us today our daily bread is probably in parallel to the first four comments in the Lord, parts of the Lord's Prayer, a reference to we feed, need to feed daily on God's word so that we would forgive one another and not and escape the temptation that is ours. That is what the Lord's Prayer tells us as we just recited it. So the whole thing in scripture from the beginning when the fall tore apart and brought death into God's good creation is working towards that which I don't know one could call eschatological reality living in the presence of God as God's children. Not committing adultery, not murdering, but beyond that, avoiding the kind of thoughts that destroy the relationships that are neglected, the reality that is pursued merely for selfish gains. Let us love one another let us love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. Let us write his word on our hearts, on our minds. Let that word trouble us because it's an unfinished process in understanding so that we review what we do or what we fail to do in order to become more what God wants us to be towards that time when all things will be restored. That's what I mean by eschatological thinking. What is the purpose, the goal of it all? Is not the rigidity of legal righteousness. It is the righteousness that matters before God and before each other. That's the heart of the matter. That's what we read in Deuteronomy. How to give indeed dignity to people. How indeed to repeal or to... Uh, uh, repel rather, I'm sorry, to repel the reality of death itself, of injustice, of unkindness, of the kind of things that disturb our relationships with each other and with our relationship to God himself. When I, what did I say? Where's my text here? Now, when I, when I say the heart of the matter is the way shown to us by God in his son Jesus Christ, isn't it intriguing that the book of Acts tells us that the first Christians were not called Christians, they were called people of the way. 
Now, we have easily in our background seen that as a way to heaven or a way to God or a way of salvation. That's right. But it's more than that. It's also the way to live, to be human, to indeed practice when the law of God is on our heart, what it means to be a redeemed person, a redeem, seeking redeemed relationships, being wise and courageous to present into the normality of life in a fallen world something of the abnormality, the unusualness of what God wishes to accomplish in us. Those gifts of the spirit that we read about, I mean, what had sung about, these gifts of, gifts of the spirit are to transform our life, our thinking, and our relationships, to be indeed those who follow the way of Jesus, who was not satisfied with the Pharisaic comprehension or the legalism of his day, but rather encourage people to be those who love God and to love their neighbor as themselves. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your word that speaks to us, not in isolated phrases that we like to quote, but indeed in that transforming power that makes us rethink our own priorities, our own understanding, to look at it through that which you wish us to, to learn and to which you call us. We pray indeed, Father, that we, in our way of life, may show something of the glorious manifestation of your spirit, of what you have shown us in the life of Christ, and what you have promised us as a fulfillment at his return. We pray that you would find us more faithful, that you would find us courageous, that you would find us more daring and creative to serve you better and to be kind to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.